we have all felt the pull of distractibility, right? The inability to, to sustain our attention, to, to really kind of focus on, on what people are telling us is important to focus on. Uh, but some people, this is a daily existence for them to an extreme where everything is very distracting for them. It's really hard to stay, stay focused. We're going to be getting into ADHD today and looking specifically at what's going on inside the brain of people that kind of struggle with this diagnosis. And this one hits really close to home for me because I personally have a diagnosis of ADHD. And as, as a neuroscientist kind of digging into this research, it's been really kind of insightful, uh, learning a lot about the things that I've struggled with a lot throughout my entire life, uh, things like forgetfulness, things like distractibility, uh, even things like clumsiness that, that come into play with a lot of this, uh, things that are really frustrating for me a lot of the time that have made me felt like there was something wrong with me for a long time. But at the same time, a lot of this research has been incredibly empowering because I owe a lot of where I'm at right now doing this show, uh, doing the, the PhD that I've been doing. I owe a lot of that to the way that my brain is wired. And so there's a lot to celebrate in the fact that there, there is a lot about ADHD that's, that's very kind of functional, that's very adaptable. Uh, and there's just certain things in, in our society and the way that we typically approach things that just really don't mesh well with the way that, that our brains work. Uh, and so we're going to dive into kind of what the, the kind of modern neuroscience is saying about what our brain is doing uh, when we're struggling with some of these things. And also really look at what kind of strategies we can put in place to, to help with some of that stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about like what meds are doing to the brain. I personally take a low dose of Adderall, uh, but we're also going to be looking at how you can set up your environment to really be successful because behavioral modification is really what provides the most stability for people that suffer with uh, a lot of the symptoms that come with this. So uh, stick with us. It's going to be a, a really interesting episode and uh, we'll get into all of it. Welcome to The Social Brain. I'm Andrew. And I'm Taylor. And this is a show where we dive into how the brain works. If you've ever wondered what's going on inside your mind, even the things that you're not even aware of, then this is the place where we can unpack that and really explore it. Okay. Okay, cool. So yeah, like Taylor's mentioning, um, distraction is a ubiquitous phenomenon, right? But uh, there's something specific about ADHD where uh, maybe distractibility or lack of uh, the ability to sustain focused attention on certain kinds of stimuli, certain kinds of things uh, is unique to ADHD. So we're going to just like start out talking about what ADHD what ADHD is according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the uh, American Psychiatric Association and as well as some other kind of perspectives on that. Um, but I just want to note from the outset, I'm, I'm not an expert on ADHD and I'm definitely less of an expert than Taylor is considering I, I have not received a ADHD diagnosis. But uh, like many of us, I know, you know, close friends and, and acquaintances who have uh, such a diagnosis. And, uh, so it, it, um, it personally affects me in some ways, but, uh, you know, I'm just not, I just want to put that out there. I'm not claiming to like know everything about this, but I don't think either of us are, but we're kind of exploring no, this and yeah. 
we're not we're not medical doctors, right? You should consult a physician for a lot of this stuff. Uh, be very weary about self diagnosis. We're going to talk a little bit about how this is diagnosed, and it's a it's a very kind of formal, very intense process to to go through and actually get the diagnosis. Uh, there's some forms of getting a diagnosis that are a lot quicker, uh, but it's probably best practice to go through kind of the the full thing. And so uh, make sure that with with whatever we say that you're kind of checking it with uh, with physicians, with psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever you need to do. Uh, but what I think is really important is that ADHD is is very misunderstood from a kind of modern perspective, kind of how we talk about it in the modern world, uh, is that we often think that it's this, this kid that can't sit still, that it's just this inability to pay attention. But ADHD is actually a really wide spectrum of, of symptoms. Uh, the ones that most people know about are kind of what Andrew was just saying, come from the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, uh, which is used to do these diagnostic kind of criteria. Uh, and a lot of that is kind of focused on children, honestly. Uh, there are some things that, that kind of tamper down as you go into adulthood. Uh, and there's also a lot of symptoms that just aren't included, that a lot of kind of medical professionals that notice this with all of their patients are uh, a little kind of perturbed that it's not part of kind of the discussion around ADHD. But the ones that are, are really common are the ones that we talk about all the time. It's, it's that uh, people with ADHD have a hard time paying attention, focusing and sustaining focus. Uh, they have an inattention to like really small details, important details. That's something that I've suffered with a lot through my life. Uh, but all of that inattention stuff is something that really needs to be put into context because a lot of people think that we just can't pay attention at all. And that's not true. If I am interested in something, if I really love what I'm doing, I can hyper-focus. And so really it's more about an inattention to things that we don't feel are necessarily important to who we are and, and what we think is interesting and what we think is fun or engaging. Yeah, that's that's such a good point because it's it's like uh, it's not that all the attention mechanisms in the brain are uh, somehow dysfunctional. Like uh, we've talked before about the various networks in the brain and like the dorsal attention network versus the ventral attention network. And uh, just as like a very quick overview, the, the dorsal tension network being more involved in really sustained focused attention on, on the task at hand, the ventral tension network being more involved in like, you know, something, go, you know, your phone goes off and uh, your attention is pulled to that notification or whatever it may be. That ventral tension network, and maybe I won't even talk in terms of neurobiology because this isn't um, super solid science, but the... Uh, that kind of attention of like your attention being pulled towards something in your environment, that's not really affected or, or it's not uh, impaired in um, ADHD individuals. It's more this, this focused attention on stuff that isn't, we could say, intrinsically interesting to the, the individual, right? Yeah, no, I, it's a great way that I've heard it put before is that uh, people with ADHD will pay attention if it's interesting if it's challenging, if it's novel, or if it's engaging, right? If it's something that really kind of sucks us in, uh, we can sit and we can binge watch a show that we love. We can sit down and we can play video games, right? You put a math test in front of us or a math homework in front of us that we, we don't know how to tie 
importance in our life to this thing that that might be important 10 years in the future like that stuff is just we don't we can't sit there and like really kind of focus on that kind of stuff and we'll get into some some of these prevailing theories there's a, a really interesting one about kind of delay aversion where there's something with having adhd that there's this this kind of aversive feeling that we have to to waiting to delay to things that are holding us honestly from things that we want to do right because in that moment, when I'm sitting there and having to do something that someone else is telling me is important, in my mind, my mind is saying, but I want to do this and I want to do that. I want to think about this and I want to think about that. Uh, and that's really what's pulling me. That's what the inattention is, is all about. And we'll get into like there's a whole network in the brain that is really involved in that kind of thought that's that's coming online when we should be kind of engaged or when we're kind of expected to be engaged. Yeah, yeah, and it'll tie into the, our previous episode on the default mode network and the uh, the frontoparietal networks, the action mode network. Um, and uh, just like on that note, when you were mentioning uh, people, you know, ADHD kind of causes this um, like difficulty with attention on things that aren't uh, interesting or novel or engaging or relevant. I think you know, just as a a side point, I think you know, neurotypical people would also probably agree with that statement to some extent, right? So, and this is kind of like a theme that will be coming across that it's, it's not that like, um, there are these really hard and fast concrete rules for what constitutes exactly like, uh, the, you know, or it's not qualitatively different. You know, we, we all some, t some, to some degree experience that it's much, it's hard for me to focus on like a lecture on quantum physics or something. Cause I, it's not relevant to me. It's not very interesting. It can be interesting, but it has to be really dumbed down <laughs> for me and made relevant to my <laughs> life and things like that. I think we can all kind of relate to that, but it's that quantitative difference, the degree to which that is, uh, expressed with ADHD. And there's there's a lot of question in the field about whether or not ADHD is this categorical thing where you either have it or you don't, or whether it is kind of on this spectrum, like you're saying, where like some people experience a lot of these symptoms, some people experience not a lot at all. Uh, one of the things that we're going to look at as we get through the episode is that there are certain things for neurotypical people, like if you don't get enough sleep, you actually look a lot like someone with ADHD and the way that your brain is behaving looks a lot like someone with ADHD. Uh, and so there's there, it, the jury's still out on this because there is some evidence that shows that like there, you can predict who has ADHD and who doesn't in these really large samples. Uh, but one of the things that I think is really important to, to really say at the offset is that if you look at work from like Javier Castellanos uh, or Edmund kind of uh, Sonoga Burke, Bark, they've been doing this work for like 30 plus years, trying to find things in the brain that are diagnosticable, di diagnosable, uh, right? That if I, if I do a brain scan and I find that this part of the brain has less volume or this part of the brain is, is underactive or whatever that is, can I now predict that that person has ADHD? And after 30 years of doing work, we're not there, right? And it shows that ADHD is a very hetero heterogeneous kind of disorder. Uh, and I, I have a hard time saying disorder too, because it's uh, leaning into kind of the neurodiversity side of these things. Like it could be very adaptable. And it's just that the brain is wired a little bit differently for these people. Uh, but it's not wired differently in a way that we can just say like, that's ADHD. 
Uh, and so we're going to be going over some of these studies that look at the brain and look at like differences that have been found and like the frontal lobe volume or the way that this comes on. Uh, but that's being done in huge, huge studies with thousands and thousands of people. And you're looking at an average across all these thousands of people. And each of those individuals, you couldn't just stick them in and say, okay, that person, uh, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this goes back to a couple of things you've already mentioned that uh, about um, a lot of this research having been done on children. Most of the research, right, has been done on kids with ADHD versus adults. And like adult ADHD wasn't even really talked about. It was recognized as a thing, but not really talked about uh, nearly to the extent that uh, for, for kids. But um, yeah. And then the other, on the other hand, um, I could be wrong about this, but I think the only like very uh, consistent, reliable finding on kids with ADHD with uh, in terms of at least brain structure um, is a lower, slightly lower cranial volume, right? Is something like that? Or is that still and even up that in the is air? like, yeah, yeah, so much of it's up in the air because a lot of this hasn't hasn't replicated. Uh, like uh, there is stuff that has come out from these big studies, but again, it's it's that there is a on average we see some of this, uh, but it's not going to be true for everybody. Uh, and and again, some people are going to have really intense symptoms that are going to need a lot of kind of behavioral modification or even kind of a high dose of medication. And some people can get away with really low doses of medication and kind of small amounts of behavioral modifications in their environment. So it really kind of sets this stage for this being a, a very kind of multifaceted idea that we're working with. Uh, we talked about the inattention symptoms that come with, with ADHD, uh, but then there's also the hyperactivity symptoms that are about kind of fidgeting, inability to stay in your seat, like uh, excessive talking. That's something that's probably why I'm on a podcast, right? I, that I've always kind of wanted to talk and, <laughs> I, and felt like I had this kind of internal drive to do these kind of things, right? Uh, and a lot of that gets into kind of impulse control, right? There's a lot of the times uh, something that I've struggled that I've had to do a lot of work with is is interrupting, uh, is like feeling like, oh, it's I need to say something. It's my turn to talk, right? Uh, and so we start looking at this and we start saying, okay, there's there's these different components. There's this component of me having a really hard time kind of sustaining focus on this thing that I'm not really interested in. And like Andrew said, like a lot of people experience that. But then there's this whole other side too of having this, this kind of hyper arousal internally. Uh, you know, as a child, this hyper arousal, especially with boys, can be seen on the outside, right? That hyper arousal is, is expressed. And you, you see them climbing and jumping and not being able to stay in their seat in class and all of these things, right? But as you get older, especially, I think a lot of it has to do with culture. It has to do with how we kind of embed ourselves in society and how we learn how to kind of behave in these situations. A lot of that arousal becomes internal and it becomes something that just feels restless, like all the time, like my mind has to be going. It has to be figuring things out. It needs to be digesting stuff. Like I listen to 10 to 15 hours of like lectures and things a week to just like bring this stuff in that I'm interested in, to do this show, to learn things from a PhD, all of this stuff. Uh, and so it's it's more than just this inattentiveness. Uh, it's really that there's just kind of this, this restlessness that we always want to be moving and doing things and, and kind of working towards something. 
Yeah, and that's it's important to uh, to put all that into context. Yeah, because we don't want to just focus on the A, the attention deficit, but attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, right? There's more to it uh, than just the attention side of it. And uh, and again, like it comes back to this idea that with with children, there might be different symptoms than when uh, that progresses into adulthood, right? Like kids, especially, and there's a higher incidence of ADHD with boys, right? Slightly at least. Um, and uh, they tend to have higher, uh, you know, ratings of like impulsiveness and inability to sit still and stuff than their adult counterparts. So like there's some uh, interesting like developmental neurodevelopment going on uh, that kind of changes this over time. Um, but yeah, we've kind of been talking about how, like some of the, the diagnostic criteria, um, but maybe we should just like dive a little bit deeper into how it's actually diagnosed to, to maybe, cause we've been talking about it in general terms and we wanted to avoid people, uh, self-diagnosing. It's very easy to do that when you hear like a podcast like this. So let's maybe get a drill into that a little bit. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's important to recognize too, that there's, there's a, some other symptoms that like we didn't mention that come up a lot with people that, that kind of experience a diagnosis of ADHD. Uh, one of those is, is really intense emotional reactivity. Uh, this is something that I've struggled a lot with where like uh, I, I become really easily frustrated, really irritable, uh, especially when things are holding me from what I want to do. Uh, or like getting in the way, it, it's, it causes this like internal struggle in me. Uh, and there's also something that was really surprising to me and really validating, honestly, uh, was that there's there's a lot of people that experience intense rejection sensitivity with ADHD uh, that I hadn't heard and hadn't seen until recently looking into some of this research. Uh, but it's something that resonates with me a lot. If I have like a negative comment on one of my videos that we post or if I have a, a criticism from a student in a class that I'm teaching, it's like a gut punch and it will like ruin my entire day and I'll perseverate on it and like my mind will get going. And I know other people experience that too. And it's different than social anxiety. It's not that I'm afraid of these situations. It's reactive to these things. Uh, and a lot of it is, is around my self-concept. It feels like they're attacking me. And I think that a lot of ADHD is kind of this self-centric thing. It's like these things that are important to me and who I am and my self-concept. Uh, and I think all of that really leads to this idea of the diagnosis side of this, because a lot of the people, especially like trained kind of psychologists that work with this stuff, um, have seen so much of this that they see a lot of the nuance. And you can go in, there's, there's diagnosis that you can get where you just go in and like you talk to someone for 30 minutes to an hour and you check the boxes on the DSM. I can't pay attention. I'm, I'm fidgety, whatever. And then they give you a prescription for Adderall. Like that is a way that you can get a diagnosis for ADHD. But what's a lot more kind of uh, rounded uh, is to go through like a full spectrum of uh, diagnostic kind of criteria where when I did this, I had, I had a full interview with a psychologist uh, that talked about my entire life, about symptoms that I had early on, because uh, there's the belief that ADHD is something that is from childhood on. And so if you didn't have it in childhood, it's not likely that you have it as an adult. Uh, and then looking and seeing if these symptoms that I'm talking about are showing up in multiple environments. That it's not that I just can't pay attention when I'm at work or when I'm at school or this kind of thing, but it's also happening at home. It's interfering with my relationship with my spouse or with my, my child. Uh, and and it's, it's all encompassing. But then after that, 
I then did a full battery of cognitive assessments where I went in and did like puzzles and games and all of these things that were looking at IQ that were trying to rule out other types of, of diagnoses that might be from learning disorders or other kind of things. Uh, and then after that, my, my mom was interviewed, my wife was interviewed. Like it was, it was really to try to get this whole comprehensive view of, okay, every, and this is something that Andrew has been hinting at is that everybody experiences some of these symptoms, right? And so what we, what really wants to be captured in a diagnostic kind of procedure is that these are happening all the time in all of the different environments that you're embedded in, embedded in. (laughs) Oh, that's such a good, um, that's such a good overview of it. It's so interesting to, to hear like how comprehensive it was how many different um, tests you did, how, how in-depth they went with it. Because like, yeah, it's it's so easy to just look at the list of symptoms of, of anything really and start to think like, well, maybe I do, maybe I do have that. But then actually taking that test uh, is a different thing. Uh, this is a side note, but I had like a, a similar experience when I, I first started learning about autism and uh, and I read this book by Temple Grandin, who's a, she, she has autism and she's a a scientist. And she, at the end, she has this test that they use as one of the tests for determining if you have like kind of the core symptoms of autism. And I I took it and I was like on the way low end of it. And I was like, oh, okay. So like all my suspicions while I was reading this book that maybe possibly I had like some mild autism were like, no, okay, no, no. I just, I just have some of these, you know, these uh, things that are, individual differences in all of us. And it's important to keep that in mind, just as Taylor was saying. Something that was really powerful for me was that I went in, I went into this and I was diagnosed as as an adult. uh, Right. And this was something that I went in and I was like, I don't want this diagnosis diagnostic criteria to just be these DSM criteria. Like, I don't want to just, because I I'm, I'm a psychologist. Like I, I know all of this stuff. I could very easily say, yeah, I'm inattentive. I, I'm hyperactive, whatever. Right. I, but what really stood out to me was some results from the IQ test that I took where I had a, a verbal kind of memory, abstract reasoning. Uh, and then there was working memory processing speed and one other, I couldn't remember what the other one was, but uh, there was this huge discrepancy in terms of uh, 60 percentile units. So I was up at at something for verbal reasoning and abstract reasoning, and then 60 percentile points down was my working memory and processing speed, which is really common with people with ADHD. And that to me was like, wow, that was based off of me playing games and doing puzzles, right? Looking at seeing if I could find letters in a string of things and seeing if I could recite back like strings of numbers to someone that just said them to me. Uh, and that was really insightful to me. And it really started to connect to a lot of the stuff that, that we've been learning about the brain with all of this kind of stuff, that there's these really big working memory deficits uh, and, and processing speed things that happen with people with ADHD because their mind kind of drifts to other things. And so they have a really hard time kind of holding these things in mind. And for me, that was just like, that wasn't this just like self-questionnaire. That was something that was that was very concrete and something that I had done in a very non-biased way that was a lot more informative for me. Yeah, that is that is super interesting to note that specifically. Um, two things on that. First, uh, just that IQ itself, right? Like someone's raw IQ score isn't um, strongly correlated with whether they have 
ADHD or not, or you can have a low IQ and have ADHD. You can have really high IQ and ADHD. And uh, from my understanding, a lot of people who do have ADHD and high IQ, probably like yourself, uh, are able to um, compensate for those those symptoms uh, and, and make it into uh, through college and into graduate school and almost you know have it get a PhD and, and get, get through these situations while um, compensating for that, those, those difficulties that they have elsewhere. Um, and then just another note on that, it's interesting to talk about working memory in the context of an attention related, um, you know, difference disorder, whatever we want to call it. But because in some ways, like, okay, so working memory is this type of memory we have that allows us to hold and manipulate information kind of in the front of our minds, right? And attention is this sort of spotlighting of information in our environment. And there's this, there are some theorists, I can't remember their names right now, but there are some, uh, some researchers out there who have talked about attention and working memory kind of being almost the same thing, almost two sides of the same coin. And they do rely on similar brain networks. And so like, and you can see just from a, a psychological perspective, from a functional perspective, there is some close relationship between your ability to hold information in your mind uh, and manipulate it and your ability to stay focused on uh, stimuli in your environment. And I think the big thing there was like sustained focus, right? That it's like, I have this thing that I'm working on right now. And because I'm working on this thing, I'm using that working memory to figure this goal out. But as soon as my mind drifts, as soon as I start thinking about other things that are important to me and about what I need to research for my podcast and, and what I need to write on my paper in a couple of days and all of these kind of things that that then takes over the working memory and wipes it. Right. And now I don't have anything for that thing that I was just working on, that thing that I was engaged in in the real world. Now I'm in kind of mind wandering land. Right. And I think that something that was really important that, that Andrew just got at is that so many people, uh, and I like really feel for so many of you out there that feel like being labeled ADHD means that you're stupid because that is not at all true. Like Andrew was, was, was hinting at the fact that like there is no correlation between IQ and ADHD at all. Uh, it's, it's, that, it's the way that we engage with the information. It's not our ability to comprehend it. Uh, and, and that's huge because so many people that get the diagnose, diagnosis of ADHD and a lot of it pushed by a lot of this Western medical view of this kind of thing is that there's something wrong with you uh, and it becomes internalized. Uh, and something that I really struggled with getting into a lot of this research is you hear a lot of people that are really prominent researchers in the field that, that study ADHD, that have been studying ADHD for like 30 years that have this really strong stance on therapy not being effective at all. And there's like, don't send, don't send your kid with ADHD to a therapist. Don't go to a therapist if you have ADHD. And I thought that was crazy because so much of what you see with ADHD is like self-esteem issues because of these things, because of the internalization of there's something wrong with me. And that is absolutely something that you can work on in therapy. Like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, might not work at decreasing core ADHD symptoms, but it will help you feel better about managing the disorder or managing the, the wiring that your brain has with this kind of stuff. Right. And, and uh, it, it gets to the point that ADHD is often not 
alone in, in a single brain, so to speak, that there's uh, anxiety is common as a, like a co you know coexisting condition and uh, depression even and uh, you know other things that maybe even stem from from the difficulties one's one is experiencing with ADHD or it's you know it's totally unrelated or whatever it may be but there uh, like you're saying that there are, can be benefits to doing that cognitive behavioral therapy and as we'll talk about uh, behavioral therapy behavior modification seems to be the single most effective maybe in combination with medication uh, treatment for for children with ADHD especially um, yeah that was I had something else but I'm just gonna blow right past it because it, it was knocked out of my working memory. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I mean, we're kind of wrapping up on uh, like what ADHD is, how it's diagnosed, right? It's I, what we really want to get across is that this is, this is a really, like I said, multifaceted type of, of thing that we're working with, right? There's, there's lots of different expressions of it in terms of emotionality, in terms of inattention, in terms of impulsiveness. Uh, and what we're going to try to get to now is looking at kind of what are the main theories that are prevalent right now that are trying to explain how those types of symptoms arise based on what the brain might be doing. And something that we didn't really get a lot into uh, is that there's a very heavy genetic component to this that we've seen, like almost from what I've seen, some of the studies show as high as like 70 to 80% heritability rates with this kind of stuff. And something that that I've kind of seen too, and a lot of the stuff that I've I've watched is a lot of it's talked about in terms of inevitability. That like if you have a parent with ADHD, like you are gonna struggle with ADHD your whole life. Uh what I think needs to be made really clear. And like anybody that that watches any like Robert Sapolsky or anything, he does a great job at like highlighting this, that most of the time genes are not about inevitability. They're about susceptibility. And what I think is really, really important is that you realize the potential that behavioral modifications, that adjusting the environment, adjusting the way that things are approached can very much influence success for someone that has one of these things, right? If if you have someone that's susceptible to ADHD and you're putting them in front of screens all the time and like that's their world, they're going to be more affected by that than someone that doesn't have the gen genetic predisposition. And like Andrew was hinting at earlier, like all of us have this distractibility, right? And this is something that's, that's really kind of uh, the jury's out on is whether or not modern culture is creating ADHD. Uh, there's some researchers that are just like, absolutely not. This is a genetic disorder. Uh, and there's another group that thinks that they might. Yeah. So important to remember what you were talking about with genetics, um, with all heritability estimates. A lot of people who haven't um, dove into uh, behavioral genetics or any of that misconstrue what a heritability estimate means. So when Taylor's saying 70 to 80%, that doesn't mean that if you have ADHD, 70 to 80% of your ADHD is due to your genetics, whatever that would mean. What it is, is it's a population level estimate. So it's talking about the, uh, the degree to which variability in genes can predict uh, the, the prevalence of ADHD. So it's, it's very it's a lot more abstract and kind of nuanced than a lot of people think. It does have something to do with our genomes, our genetics, um, and it can tell us something about a given 
uh, disorder or, uh, you know, whatever we're talking about, um, whether it's, you know, ADHD or IQ or whatever it might be, but it is always dependent on the population, the specific population you're studying and their environment. So the heritability estimates often um, vary by the population that you study and the environment that they they are in. So as Taylor was just talking, the culture, our uh, upbringing, whatever it might be, has a has an influence on this because genes uh, are, are expressed and uh, differently based on the environment that you find yourself in, based on the other genes that are that they are. Um, you know, working within the genome, all of this stuff is important to remember while acknowledging, okay, there's likely a genetic component. Uh, there is certainly a genetic component to, to ADHD. And this is, this is something that I, I really like, this is really personal for me because I, ADHD has been shown to run in families. I see it in, in my family. It's something that prompted me to want to go and check to see if I had the diagnosis because I now have a child. And knowing that genetics is more about susceptibility, if I know as a parent that, that I have ADHD and that my, my child is susceptible to potentially having some of the same struggles that I had, that now gives me the power as a parent to shape my child's environment to give them the best chance at success. Right. To, to really know that, like, you know what, some of these things that affect everyone in terms of distractibility might affect my child more. And I might need to have more kind of strict boundaries around these things, might have to have different types of consequences and things like that, that that really kind of help him navigate his world in a different way. And hopefully, too, the, the brain when we're young is super plastic. Right. And so if you can set your child up for success. And we see this with parent training programs, with behavioral modification, how amazing these things are for young children. If the work is put in, that it allows their brain to start adapting in a different way. And it allows these circuits to start kind of figuring out how to, how to make their way in the modern world so that when they do become adults, they don't struggle with this as much. Yeah. And just a, just a quick analogy to what Taylor's talking about. If you think about, and this is, I'm not saying these two things are the same, but ADHD, or I mean, uh, if you think about like heart disease or cardiovascular disease, right? Some people have a, just a genetic predisposition toward developing heart disease much more so than others, right? But it benefits everybody and maybe especially those with a genetic predisposition to do the kinds of things that will help to prevent heart or cardiovascular disease like exercise, diet, you know, sleep, all these like basic health behaviors. Um, and I just, I just wanted to like make that a little bit more concrete for people if it was a little abstract, but sorry, go, yeah. go continue on. No, 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 that was, that was perfect. Cause yeah, like everybody should be working to like, to, to have more sustained focus, to learn how to do that, to, to learn how to regulate emotions and how to regulate impulses. It just might take a little bit more for someone that has one of these susceptibilities. So let's maybe dive into some of these theories, right? Because uh, there are two, I think, really kind of prevailing theories around what is really capturing the symptoms that we see from ADHD. Uh, and they're not necessarily at odds with one another. And we'll kind of get into that. But I... Uh, 
Russell Barkley is a, a very prominent figure in ADHD. He's been kind of researching this for over 30 years, uh, and he's a big proponent of the executive dysfunction side of ADHD. Uh, that And this is something that has been really, it was really tough as someone that struggles with this to, to listen to him talk. Uh, I, he knows a lot. And there was a lot of really good information that I got from Russell Barkley. I know that he's written some amazing books that help with like parents dealing with these kind of things. But there was very much a message of like, there is something wrong with you. You can't control yourself. Uh, and there definitely is an element of that, right? Executive dysfunction is referring to the fact that there are parts of our brain that are involved with regulatory things, with maintaining control over our impulses, over our emotions, over our ability to sustain attention. And the argument is that there that in people with ADHD, that there is some dysfunction to these networks in the brain that are responsible for this kind of overarching planning, decision-making type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to our, our episode last week about the the various brain networks, the default mode network and the, you know, frontal parietal network and the action mode network. And uh, yeah, these, these uh, executive functions that Taylor's talking about, whether it's, you know, sustaining um, attention or working memory or, uh, or impulse control, all these kinds of things, emotion regulation. Uh, the big part of that is the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe um, and its connections with, other parts of the brain. So the frontal lobe is kind of, or the prefrontal cortex is kind of this executive in the brain. It's kind of this con cognitive control center. And so the idea um, of this, this hypothesis, this theory is that there is something going on with that cognitive control system, maybe the prefrontal cortex, maybe elsewhere that is leading to these deficits or these difficulties. And I think a really important distinction to make here, too, is that when we're talking about the frontal lobe, because we're going to get into some other stuff, is that most of this executive stuff is the stuff that's on the outside right. of the frontal lobe. It's the, the lateral the, frontal lobe. And the bottom, the, yep, the orbital the front. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and this stuff has been shown like in studies with like, again, like I said, with these really large samples, this is not like every individual with ADHD shows this profile, but there tends to be an under active kind of component to some of these executive regions. Uh, but one of the things that's really important to kind of highlight here too, is that you're seeing this in very specific tasks that they're doing, right? When they're studying this stuff, they're sticking someone into an MRI scanner, and then they're having them do some kind of a task, like a task that requires that they like uh, inhibit their, their motor response. There's a, there's one called the stop signal task. That's, that's really kind of widely used where uh, you have to hit the button every time you see the, the letter X, but then sometimes you see something that says, don't push the button next time you see X. And then you have to like, you have to inhibit yourself. Right. Uh, and so they've shown like in some of these studies that you, there's a difference with people with ADHD than with people that aren't. Uh, but there's a lot baked into this too, because one of the things that we talked about with ADHD is that they don't like doing things that aren't interesting, right? <laughs> so that could be a component of this too. Uh, but this is, again, one of those things where like when you hear one of the people I love listening to, Javier Castellanos, uh, he had this whole talk where he's like, look, I've been in this research for like 30 years and we still don't know. We wish we knew what was going on. But there's like there's little bits that point here and there. And uh, Russell Barkley has really, really gravitated to like there is something wrong with your executive function. You cannot control yourself. Right. And it starts to explain a lot of these symptoms. Right. 
our inability to pay attention is tied to our inability to control where our attention is pointed, right? We have all of these desires and these thoughts and these feelings that are coming up and we can't, we can't control which one we want to focus on, right? That's kind of the, the, the idea with this theory. Uh, same with, with emotions, that we become really emotionally reactive because it comes up and then we don't have the ability to stop it, right? Uh, impulsivity, hyperactivity, getting up and out of our seat, that we have these motors that are driving us that are outside of our control, right? Uh, and something that comes out of this that you'll see if you get really into Russell Barkley is that he's very heavily kind of pushing medication. Uh, and something that was was really tough for me to digest was that he constantly uses this metaphor that ADHD is the diabetes of psychiatry. And it just like, it was, it was kind of gross. Uh, honestly, I, I didn't like the metaphor at all. If, if people with diabetes don't take insulin, they can go into hyperglycemic shock and die. Right. If I don't take Adderall, I don't die. Like, I might have an inability to focus, to pay attention. It, it does help with those things, right? Uh, but there are also a lot of things that aren't medication that help with these things too, that we'll kind of get into here in just a minute. But uh, it's it's something that there is a lot to this idea of executive dysfunction. And I, I don't like using the word dysfunction, but there is a different way that we regulate as someone with ADHD than maybe someone that doesn't. Yeah. And uh, a lot of these medications center on the dopamine system, the norepinephrine system. And as we're talking about this uh, relationship with the kind of like fronto parietal networks, uh, um, the executive control system, um, one of the things that uh, in Andrew Huberman, uh, the Huberman lab, he has a, a podcast episode where he's talking about ADHD and he talks about this uh, finding that there's a there's basically like discoordination between the default mode network and the frontoparietal network. And again, this is okay, this is like not going to explain every case of ADHD, right? As we're talking about, there's a lot of variability here. We're not certain about basically any of this stuff, but uh but there is there does seem to be in many cases this this situation where the default mode network is coming online when uh, it shouldn't be, when the when it should be kind of inhibited by these frontoparietal control networks, and we can get into like what that means functionally. But it may be uh, there. There's one of the roles of dopamine is to coordinate this switching between these networks. So again, this this kind of lends credence to this idea of the kind of executive dysfunction hypothesis of ADHD, but this uh, dopamine system is also deeply intertwined with the other major theory of what's going on with ADHD. So uh, I don't know if you want to say anything more about the executive dysfunction or no, uh, I, default I mean, mode network kind of or anything. Piggybacking on what you just said uh, is that dopamine tends to heavily innervate. So it, it, it tends to activate these executive regions pretty heavily uh, that are involved with sustained attention, with, with impulse control, with regulation, all of these kind of things. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me with ADHD when I've uh, taught like classes and stuff that uh, they're like, I don't understand why taking a stimulant causes someone that's, that's really fidgety to calm down, right? 
And a lot of it is not that the stimulant is calming them down. The stimulant is stimulating the regions of the brain that are regulating those things that are saying, you know what, We're, we have a task. We're doing something right now. We don't need to be moving around. We don't need to be fidgeting, right? It's not that the stimulant is calming them down. It's, it's improving their regulatory ability. It's improving their ability to, to control the impulses. That ties really heavily into kind of Russell Barkley's idea about executive dysfunction, right? Uh, but this other one that's really interesting that really kind of resonated so much with, with my experience uh, and we'll get into like there's different subpopulations of ADHD. Some people are more heavily on the impulse stuff and some people are more heavily on kind of this idea. And his idea was something called delay aversion. And a lot of the people thought that he was like wild for wanting to go down this road. They're like, we, we know what ADHD, it's executive dysfunction. Uh, and he said, you know what, let's look at this from more of a functional perspective. Uh, something that like is the symptom are the symptoms of ADHD something that people are engaging in to overcome something internal, right? The, the restlessness, the inattention, all of that kind of stuff. And the idea was that people with ADHD have an aversion to delay to like, and, and this resonates so much with me. This comes into play, like in conversations, if someone is like talking really slowly or is like not getting to the point, I'm like, I need to, I need to say something. I need to like, right. Uh, and uh, it, it comes into play with like children that are sitting in a classroom and they have these things in their mind that they want to do. That's not what the teacher wants them to do. And so they start fidgeting, they start passing time to start focusing on something, right? Uh, uh, so much of it is that the things that come out in ADHD as symptoms tend to be things that speed up our perception of time, right? So you think about mind wandering, that's really common with people with ADHD. If I am really bored by what's going on right now and I feel like time is just dragging, I can go into my own world. And like most people can relate to this. When you're just kind of lost in thought, you lose complete track of time. You're not worried about like what's coming next or any of these kind of things. Uh, and a big component of this delay aversion theory is that there's something that's that's really common with people with ADHD, that they prefer immediate rewards to delayed rewards, much more so than kind of neurotypical people. Uh, and so this this person, Edmund uh, Sanugabark, really kind of dove into this for, for 30 years. Uh, and there's really interesting kind of work that came out of that. And it's it's much less of a, there's something wrong with you and more like, this is, these are adaptable things, strategies that you've kind of picked up on to kind of quiet down this restlessness and this kind of aversion to having to wait. Yeah. And something I found really interesting about that was it's, from my understanding, it's not only uh, preferring immediate rewards over long-term rewards, but preferring immediate consequences to long-term consequences too, uh, which I found really interesting. Um I, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I have been doing some research on procrastination on the side. I'm, I'm writing a, doing a, going to video going to be coming out soon about procrastination, uh, the science of it. And there's definitely some, some parallels between what we're talking about here, because there's this recent paper from 2022 in uh, the nature, the nature communications. And it was, it was the study of procrastination behavior. And they did this interesting thing where they were basically able to measure um, something called uh, 
temporal discounting of effort and reward. And so it's kind of just what we're talking about here. And one of the things they found was that people who tend to procrastinate tend to ha may have a cognitive bias that makes doing a task later seem almost easier or, or less effortful and not much less rewarding. Um, and it was interesting to me to, to think of this in the context of ADHD, where uh, it's, I, I mean, I know that there's some differences there, but I just wanted to throw that out there because I'm not even sure if procrastination is a common symptom of ADHD, but there seems to be some, something tying those together. It's, it's, it's a huge symptom with ADHD. Uh, and it's, it's a huge component of the behavioral kind of uh, methods and strategies that are used for handling ADHD with children, with adults, with anything. Uh, something that I've found a lot of kind of uh, uh, relief from is the idea of accountability and exactly what you're talking about. That uh, with me, if I have immediate accountability, if I have consequences, right? Those consequences are getting in the way of like me having or doing what I want, right? And so they're they're more immediate to me. Uh, and that, that tends to be something that's really common with people with ADHD is that they can do things if, if it's urgent. If like, if I have a deadline, if I have this, uh, and it's something that, a lot of the times this falls on other people, which is really frustrating, right? Uh, this falls on like on my wife or on my, my mentor to say like, I need to have an accountability structure for you that, that allows you to, to know that like, I need you to do this and I need you to do that in a certain time frame, right? One of the things that I struggled with a lot throughout my PhD was the just like, there wasn't deadlines, really. It was just like, yeah, you know what? We'll finish that when we finish it. And then it's like, okay, I'll do it eventually. And what I tended to do was I would focus all of my time on things that provided immediate reward. So I would put a ton of time and effort into my teaching materials because I could go and teach a class and I could get immediate feedback from my students. I'm like, oh, I love this class. This is great, right? But my paper... I might not get any accolades or any recognition at all for like eight months. And so it was really easy for me to keep pushing that off. And like what has really helped with me is that I need to make things more immediate in my environment and I need to externalize them because uh, what a lot of this delay aversion stuff really gets at is that people with ADHD have a really hard time kind of keeping track of time, of understanding like where things fall. And so something that I've had to do is have, I've had to build up accountability structures in my life around like, instead of having this big thing that's gonna be done in eight months, I have to have this part done by then, I have to have this part done by then, right? And you really start setting up this structure around your behavior, knowing that that's something that you fall into. Yeah, and it's again, like a, 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 um, like a somewhat extreme expression of what, you know, many, neurotypical yeah. people experience too. Like I, myself, I, I have to have, <laughs> I have a yearly goals, quarterly goals, weekly goals, <laughs> and daily goals that yeah. are all like in line with that. Because if I, uh, if I just focus or I just write down the, you know, my new year's resolution, my goals for the year, um, I'm going to push those off and I'm going to do the stuff that seems more urgent. Um, but yeah, but obviously like there's, there's a difference and there's a, it's like a quantitative difference between kind of the neurotypical brain and the, the ADHD brain. Um, but do we, uh, yeah, I guess we've already kind of gotten into some of the, the brain theories as I'm mentioning brains. Um, but with this delay um, aversion, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say like, cause you mentioned this, this kind of 
default mode interference hypothesis, yeah. which I is like my favorite uh, theory about ADHD. I think it's really, really cool. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the default mode on this channel. We've had multiple episodes on it. So if you want to know kind of more in detail about what it is, you can go check those out. But the, the main kind of overarching idea is that the default mode network is, is heavily involved in the mind wandering stuff that we experience in kind of thoughts arising in our brain. A lot of these are self-centered, uh, not in like a negative way, but they're about things that are important to us, right? Did I take the trash out? Is my wife still upset with me for something that I did, right? These things that are just like swirling around in your head. Uh, and what we tend to see in the research is that that, that network is heavily anti-correlated with networks that are involved in engagement in being kind of active in a task being sustained in a task and when i say anti-correlated i mean when the default mode is on the other ones are are off not off but like they're they're very like it's it's a seesaw when one comes on the other one goes down and this tends to be like when you look at graphs of this i mean it is like they they are like totally opposite of one another when they're coming on and off and what we tend to see with people with ADHD is that the default mode network, this network that's that's about mind watering and thinking about things that are important to me, is coming on when it's not supposed to. It's coming on when we're when we're trying to engage in a task. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to this. This is something that just like was like an aha moment for me because like I'll be I'll be trying to do something. I'll be trying to like grade papers or trying to like write my paper or whatever it might be. And like I'm constantly just like distracted by these other things that are coming into my head about what might be more fun or what might be more interesting or what might be more important to me. Uh, and one of the things that's really important to think about in, in this scenario is it, it explains a lot about the working memory stuff. Like one of the things that's really, really tough for me is forgetfulness. Uh, I get so incredibly frustrated with myself where like my wife will ask me to do something and like five seconds later, it's gone. Uh, and, and just like, just the attention to detail and these kind of things. And I think what really is happening is that when we're sustaining attention, our working memory is being used to solve that thing. Right. But with people with ADHD, our mind wandering starts to come on and all of a sudden we're now shifting our working memory to something else. Instead of sustaining it on the task, we're now like, oh yeah, there is that thing that I, I need to think about. And like, did I think that all the way through? And, and now all of a sudden that's that other thing that I was thinking about is just gone. It is, it is gone. Uh, and a lot of the strategies around this are about externalizing these things. And it's something that I've had to lean really heavily on in like using my smartphone, using calendars, using all of these things that, that really externalize a lot of my memory uh, so that I don't have to rely on kind of staying out of the mind wandery type stuff. It's, it reminds me of just of meditation, mindfulness meditation, because uh, I think like if, we can all kind of like get a taste of this. If you try mindfulness meditation, especially for like the first time, uh, you will find that your mind, no matter how much you want to just focus on your breath or some other, you know, simple stimulus, you will find your mind wandering in, you know, 10 seconds, five seconds, it'll go to, oh, what was that thing earlier today when I was uh, talking to Taylor? I was I was thinking about this and, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. Or, or yeah, that was good. That was really, and then I was like, oh, I've forgotten that I'm meditating. <laughs> and then you uh, you can come back to it. But it's, it is this, uh, that's kind of one way that we can all see this default mode network coming online 
when they're, we're trying to pay attention to something that we're not intrinsically interested in. Like, I don't think, I mean, until you like really meditate for a long time, your breath or your body or whatever maybe is not like very interesting. It's not something that like grabs your attention and is, <laughs> oh, this is amazing. I'm going to focus all on uh, the sensations of my breath in my lower part of my belly. No, it's like, okay, that that's, I've done that. And now these other things are coming online. The default mode is just like, all right, let's, let's start, uh, talk, thinking about ourselves, thinking about the future, the past, uh, these things that are more valuable than just paying attention to the breath. Um, but yeah, just, again, I, 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 I know I keep pulling it back to like how neurotypical stuff, but I think it's, it's kind of important for us to like relate to what's going on with ADHD, understand like, again, these are like, yeah. From my perspective, they seem, and I'm not a clinician, I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist or anything, but they do seem just like quantitatively uh, higher expressions of what most people experience, um, at least in some circumstances. Something that I've been thinking a lot about lately that I think gets left out of this conversation a lot is that... Um, the default mode oftentimes is talked about in terms of being this, this mind wandering thing, which it, it absolutely is. But what often doesn't get talked about is that the default mode is also used to passively understand things. Uh, so when we're, when we're relaxing and we're watching a movie uh, and we're not effortful, we're not, we don't have like a goal in mind of like, I need to, I need to like learn this and write this stuff down. That's the default mode is processing all of those stories and thinking about those people and all of that kind of stuff. And so when you think about it, like a lot of this stuff is really interesting to people with ADHD. Like, and it's really interesting to most people, right? That we're feeding this network, like things that that are just kind of passive and, and like entertaining and things like that. Uh, but you'll see that like with it kind of being kind of at the extreme, this is something that can be really frustrating for a lot of parents, right? Is that they, they, they can just sit and just focus on, on something like their favorite show or their video game or whatever it may be. Uh, and it's because they're, they're feeding that, that network. And it's the same with me. Like I, I'm, I'd say really lucky that I've found my passion uh, because a lot of people don't like the research on passion shows that like one of every four people, is like knows that like this is what I want, this is what I want to do, uh, and because of that, I feel like I'm able to funnel a lot of stuff in. So when I'm on the bus and I'm just like listening to like lectures about ADHD or about anxiety or about the brain doing this or doing that, like that to me is default mode time. I'm not sitting there saying like I need to write down all of these things. I'm just like, whoa, this is really interesting, and I can just sit there and just let it just like compost and come in and just like uh and something that's that's really kind of fascinating i think about uh something that comes out a lot with adhd is these like creative bursts that they have um and i think a lot of that has to do with like this 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 ability to let all of this stuff simmer and and relate to it and come on and come off instead of being like hyper focused on like what other people think are important we're letting these ideas kind of simmer and uh, and it comes out a lot of times in these really creative kind of bursts that a lot of really successful people in our society have been people that have ADHD. So true. Yeah. M most people I know who have ADHD express that, like the ability to have these, these amazing, creative, focused bursts. And I know people like in my personal life who can get so I mean, there. Like this was something I wanted to mention earlier when I was talking about when we were talking about IQ and and um, versus you know ADHD. Like 
this is probably a selection bias because I'm, you know, I don't know. I, the people I know is not a <laughs> accurate sample of like everyone with ADHD, of course, but, um, but everybody I know who, who has told me they have a diagnosis of ADHD is in some way a high achiever in a technical field, which I find really interesting. Like yourself, uh, other people <laughs> I know, uh, who are, you know, anything from designers to uh, computer programmers to project manager, like people that I, it's, it's, it's fascinating bit, but these are things that require uh, I, like a passion and then a deep focus on them. So it does make sense from the perspective of what you were just talking about. Now we're, we usually do hour long episodes. I don't know how, how Andrew feels. I'm, I'm okay going a little bit longer. Sure. Uh, yeah. But uh, one of the things that I want to highlight is that we brought up these two different theories, right? We brought up this idea of executive dysfunction, and we brought up this idea of delay aversion. Uh, and one of the really interesting things from delay aversion was that uh, the idea from executive dysfunction was that like uh, the reason why people with ADHD will choose an immediate reward versus a long-term reward is because they don't have any self-control. That's the executive kind of dysfunction view of this. Uh, but they did some really interesting research that showed that they that people with ADHD can can do delayed rewards if those delayed rewards are really important and meaningful to them. It's more about value. And a lot of the times not waiting is very valuable. Uh, and they they started to put these two theories kind of head to head with each other and said, OK, is it executive dysfunction or is it delay aversion? And what really came out from that was that there are subpopulations of people with ADHD. And they noticed that like you had like 40% of them were really well characterized by this delay aversion idea. It has to do with like reward circuitry in the brain, deep in the brain, uh, also hit by dopamine. So what's really interesting is both of these theories are both kind of involved in the dopamine system, which medications are targeting. Uh, but then there's a whole other subpopulation that really fits a lot more into kind of the impulse side of things of having a really hard time regulating. Uh, and what I think is really interesting that this leads into is the, the strategies that are pushed for some of this stuff. Uh, and Andrew hinted at it earlier. Uh, there's a, a doctor named Dr. Pelham that does this like amazing behavioral program uh, where he does like uh, parent training for children. Uh, he does social like they, they do like camps where they do social learning to make sure that like social skills are at par for a lot of these people that have maybe internalized that there's something wrong or different with me. Um, and the results from these things compared to medication are amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's, he talks about it as like behavior modification being the really only evidence based or with the strongest evidence base <laughs> in terms of therapeutic interventions in addition to medication. And I think he does touch on the idea that medications have this shorter term effect that can can like uh diminish some of the the more obvious symptoms but and this is in kids like a lot of this is in children because that's who he he yeah. typically works with um and so like medications can have this short-term effect but these behavioral modifications can have a much uh, or a longer lasting effect. And he also talks about it, that there being individual differences that some, some people will respond uh, enough to it, like a low dose of medication or just to the behavior therapy. And some will have to have both. And uh, he recommends doing this sort of like um, elimination type thing where you <laughs> start with uh, one of them, typically with the 
or ideally with behavior modification and then uh, stop doing that and then do the medication and then see which is more effective what, than putting them together. Um, and so, but in the end, the, the idea is like this, this behavioral therapy, which we can like talk about a little bit more uh, is super effective. So if like there's, I guess if there's parents out there listening to this, who, whose children have ADHD, um, he said, I remember one of the quotes from the lecture, lecture we listened to is he said, the most impactful thing for kids with ADHD is parent training. So if that's, yeah. you know, relevant for anyone out there. No, and I, I've heard this from like a therapeutic approach that a lot of therapists that work with people with ADHD, with children with ADHD, a lot of the work that they do is actually parent training it is how to really build structure in the household around externalizing things like memory, bringing accountability to the forefront, making things more immediate in terms of reward, in terms of consequence, uh, not necessarily just like focusing entirely on reward and consequence, but figuring out how to cater things around the natural interests of the child and understanding that a lot of what's driving their behavior are the things that they're really kind of that they're, they're really interested in. Uh, and knowing one of the things I think that's really powerful about accountability is that we as humans have really high social belonging needs that we we need like we want to feel like the people around us uh, love us and accept us and all of these kind of things. Um, and a lot of the accountability is like, uh, OK, I'm going to have this consequence that I might be like in trouble with with like my, my parents or with uh, the teacher or with these kind of things uh, that makes that kind of self stuff like really relevant of like, oh, man, I need to like do this. And a lot of a lot of what they show like in the classroom is like uh, daily report cards where you're, you're getting this like feedback per day on like how you're doing in the classroom and things like that. And something that, that Andrew hinted at, there's this really interesting study that they did where they were looking at rule violations in the classroom. And what they found was that the children that just got behavioral modification, so the parents went this, through this whole parent training program, it's a lot of work, right? A lot of work. And you had a, a group of children that got medication only. And then you had some that started with medication and then got behavioral later. And you have some that started with behavioral and then got medication later. Uh, and what they found was that the group that did the best in terms of like lowering the amount of like rule violations in the classroom and things like that were the ones that started with behavioral stuff first. The parent training stuff happened. They were implementing it in the household and all of this stuff. Uh, and then if they needed a little extra support, then they added medication on that. But what was really cool was that the children in that category were on the lowest doses of the medication because the behavioral stuff was scaffolding so much in their lives that that extra boost that they needed was actually at a really low dose. And what was fascinating in this study was that the group that did the worst was the ones that started with medication and added behavioral stuff later. And it's kind of counterintuitive to think about it for a minute. You're just like, okay, it's the same. The group that did the best had behavioral and medication, but the group that did the worst also had behavioral and medication. And what they think is happening is that the children that start with medication, the the actual behavioral stuff that's added later, there's not a lot of compliance to it because the medication is easy. It's like, I can, I can give him an Adderall. I can take an Adderall and like that, that gives me this like short-term focus or whatever. That doesn't mean that I now have to modify my entire lifestyle, my entire way of interacting with my child, my way of interacting with myself. Right. I, uh, and this, this comes up a lot, right. That when something is prescribed, 
that person that's prescribing it is not then going home with you and, and helping you implement all of these behavioral things. And it's a lot easier to, to take something. Uh, but there's not a lot of evidence that these medications have long-term benefits in terms of child success in school and things like that. It, it is really effective at seat work from what I've seen, where like you can sit down and you can do that assignment right there. Uh, but it, it hasn't contributed to like overall kind of reduction of these symptoms like the behavioral stuff can, where you're really building strategies into your life. Like Andrew was saying earlier, it's like these strategies are good for everyone to, to be, be more organized, to, to have this plan in place, to have short-term versus long-term goals and work through these things. Uh, but they can be astronomically beneficial for for children and for adults that are, are kind of struggling with some of this stuff. Yeah, and like just to drill into that caveat about uh, the the lowest performing group was the one where uh, medication was started first and then behavioral interventions were added in. I just don't want anybody to miss what Taylor said, which was that it was at least uh, Pelham's uh, uh, conclusion on that was that it wasn't that the medication stopped the behavior modification from working. It was that the the parents who uh, had started with medication were perhaps less likely to follow through and comply with the, the behavior modification protocols. And so he's like asked later in the lecture, um, you know, well, what if, what if I started with medication? What if my child's on medication now? Like, did I screw up? And he emphasizes, no, like the idea is just that if you are, you know, motivated and, and committed to doing these kind of behavior modification things with your child, uh, then you can be probably just as successful as that group that starts with behavior modification. It's really that compliance and the commitment to it. Yep. And there's, uh, if you look up, it's, I think it's P-E-L-H-A-M. Uh, I think uh, he has like whole manuals on his website uh, for, for like what this parent training is like and how to implement some of this stuff. Uh, but it's hard work. And, and that's, that's kind of what we're getting at. And that's, that's the case with a lot of mental illness uh, is that to overcome these things, there is kind of short-term benefit to taking medication, but there's incredible benefit to putting in hard work. And some of the things that, that we can kind of highlight here as we kind of get into the end of the, the episode is the stuff that we can do because we, neurotypical people, people with ADHD can improve their attention. Yeah. Yeah. There are known ways of improving the, like the efficiency of the attention systems and things like that. Um, so, I mean, we've got a few different items here we wanted to talk about, but something I, I mentioned earlier that uh, I think is important is uh, mind or uh, meditation. That is this kind of focused attention type of meditation where you're, you're focusing on one thing and bringing your attention back to it over and over again. Um, I don't know what the, the results for specifically for people with ADHD are, but in general, it, it improves your ability to sustain focused attention. And again, like everything we're going to talk about and what we were just saying, consistency and commitment and like routinizing these things is really important because as we've said before, neuroplasticity is hard. It involves effort and it involves time. And it is so much easier to just go back to the old uh, behavior patterns, even if they are suboptimal, right? So it's, it's important yeah. to keep these things up to build those neural pathways. Um, but yeah, just 
that was just one item, the mindfulness or uh, focused attention meditations. And in that same vein, there's actually a lot of benefit. Uh, and I would, I personally have gotten a lot of benefit from more of an open awareness uh, meditation mm -hmm. as well. Uh, so open awareness would be like sitting there and not focusing on anything, just like letting things come up. Uh, because one of the things that we talked about was that the default mode is really highly active in people with ADHD. And if you can gain insight into when that's happening, right? So if I just sit here, like Andrew mentioned earlier, if you sit there and you just try to not think about anything, you're going to start seeing these thoughts just <laughs> come from places, right? Uh, and we're not authors of a lot of these thoughts. Those thoughts are coming from our brain. They're coming from our default mode network. It's trying to solve problems. It's trying to say like what we need to do, and what we should focus on and all of these kind of things. Uh, and the more that we can recognize when that's happening, the more we can start to build the regulatory control over it. Because something that, that Andrew hinted at was that this is under the the kind of umbrella of neuroplasticity like these these parts of the brain that we're talking about are among the most plastic parts of the brain like the these are the brains that that can be rewired uh but we've we have a whole episode on neuroplasticity where we talk about how hard this is right like neuroplasticity is thrown around all the time like yeah change your brain uh but what's often not talked about is consistency that like in order to really change your brain, you need to wake up every day and commit to that new lifestyle. Uh, and over time, it's just gonna be who you are and it's just gonna be what you do. But at the beginning, you're gonna have a very strong pull to be who you are trying not to be. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And um, just to, to tag on to that open monitoring or open awareness uh, meditation, um, there's a subtle difference between just letting your mind wander and engaging in this open awareness, open monitoring meditation. It's something I actually, that's like the form of meditation that I, I do most of the time. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, th there's a, there's a subtle ability that you can develop over time to come back to the present without focusing on anything in particular and without following every thought that comes to mind. And I think that's a really key about what we're talking about is it's not getting rid of thought. It's not stopping your mind from creating thoughts. I mean, that's, you can maybe inhibit those. You can maybe tamp that ability or tamp that down. But the truth is there's always going to be thoughts. And the key is to just not pay it full attention and, and go down whatever rabbit hole they're going to take you down every single time they come up. So I just wanted to throw that out there. It's like, yeah, these, both of these, uh, major forms of meditation, the focused attention and the open monitoring are important uh, for focused, for attention, for, for improving attention. Now, this other one is something that I've brought up uh, multiple times on this show. You've probably heard me talk about it before. This is not something that comes up a lot in like talking about meditation, something that I've kind of come to through my work, uh, looking at the nature of the self in the brain. Uh, and what I think is really going on a lot of the time is that those thoughts that are arising are very self-centric. They're very much about me, about what's important to me and what I want to do and all of these kind of things. Uh, and so when you think about that, those are the things that are distracting you, right? There's, I believe that you can spend time with yourself defining what's important. And really saying like, okay, and kind of in tandem, you can do it in tandem with these things, but like, listen to these thoughts, listen to what they're saying, listen to say like, is that really important to me? Like, 
maybe I need to, to really think about my values and define like what it is that I want to be accomplishing, what it is that I want my focus to be on, why it's important to me, why it's important to my future, to my relationships, to all of these things. And the more work you put in that arena of really thinking about what's valuable to you and who you are, that will shape the nature of the distractible thoughts. That's, that's such an important thing to to remember, um, even with, with some of these more, uh, concrete like issues that, that people with ADHD have, or that many of us have when it comes to like procrastination or to focusing on something that you're not interested in. Um, if you can tap into those values and connect those deeply held personal values that have something to do with your authentic sense of self and identity, uh, and are propelling you toward some goal that has to do with that, it can make doing even menial tasks feel a lot more meaningful and a lot less uh, drudgery, you know? I remember listening to Huberman one time talk about like that he would delude himself like in, yeah. in school, <laughs> like he would spend time trying to convince himself why he cared about this thing. Uh, and I, I've done the same thing. And like, yeah. and I actually encourage my students to do the same thing. Like, like I, I'm teaching a stats class right now. It's just like, yeah, this stuff sucks. But <laughs> if you can sit there and actually convince yourself, like, you know what, this is really interesting. It's tied to the foundation of how we, how we build interventions in psychology and how psychology has become what it is, is all kind of built on this foundation of stats. And I want to be a psychologist. And, and so, you know, that that needs to be part of my toolkit of what I understand and how I help clients and all of these things. And the more you can do that, the more you can start internalizing these things and realizing that like, okay, this kind of sucks right now, but it is who I am. It is tied to what I want in life. Uh, that you tend to pay more attention, but you also tend to like enjoy it more <laughs> and you actually start liking the thing. Yeah, that's so funny. It's slightly different, but when I was in college, I remember... I would look at my schedule for the semester and think about like, okay, this is going to be my hardest class. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it was like, like when I first started taking like chemistry courses, it was like, oh, okay, organic chemistry is going to be my hardest class. So I'm going to spend like the bulk of my schedule working on this class. And then that turns out to become like my favorite, most interesting class of the semester. And I think it it has to do with this like, getting deeper into it and seeing the, like yeah. the intricacies and the, how it actually relates to these things. Like, um, but it, there's a, like a level of almost, I don't know, delusion or exaggeration about it. And the way that Huberman phrased it was something like he would pretend that it was the most interesting thing in the world and then just get himself <laughs> to do that. But he did emphasize that that may be, may be harder for some individuals with ADHD just yeah. naturally to, to pretend like something yeah. is more interesting to you. So that's why it's so important to do what Taylor's talking about with this value work, focusing on what is truly valuable to you as a person. Yep. Uh, so these other couple of things, we mentioned meds. I think it's really important that we also mention diet. Uh, there's there's very strong opinions on both sides. I know there's a lot of parents out there that uh, get upset that diet's not talked about. Uh, if we're also talking about taking amphetamines, because that's what they are, uh, right? Uh, that Think about it this way, right? I, if, if you go and you had a hard day and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to go like slog down this like super greasy burger. I'm going to chase it down with a beer, right? 
how how good are you at paying attention after that and even the next day right that like your your diet the things that you put into your body are affecting the way that your brain operates there's a very strong connection between the gut and the brain uh and there's there's a lot of interesting work going on now in how uh, not just ADHD, but a lot of mental illness can really be kind of propped up and supported by healthy diets. Oh, and I know that for myself. I mean, I've talked before about, I, I've never been clinically diagnosed with like uh, anxiety, but um, with with uh, depression and with things like that, I have found that the better I make my diet, the better I feel physically and this goes to uh, talking about interoception and the relationship between the body and emotions. If you're, especially like your gut, but also, you know, just elsewhere in your body, if it feels bad, if you have this like, just, oh, Mike, I'm not feeling good in my stomach, that can have a profound impact on your emotional uh, regulation, your, just your emotional experience. And so it's no wonder to me that that uh, yeah. diet in general has an effect on on even symptoms of, of ADHD. But also when we get into the specifics of kind of like the micronutrients uh, that might or might not be beneficial for improving focus or improving attention, uh, it, it does make sense because we're you know when we talk about uh, dopamine or norepinephrine being involved in focused attention, being involved in ADHD, um, you know, the, how do you get dopamine, right? Your body has to make it. And it's specifically, it's made from a, uh, amino acid, a component of proteins called L-tyrosine and L-tyrosine, it comes in supplement form. You can get it over the counter. I'm not recommending anybody like take it. Uh, but there, there is research on how taking supplements of L-tyrosine can increase dopamine production in the brain. And I know just like from experimenting myself with maybe too large of doses of L-tyrosine that it can uh, have like a profound effect on your cognition. Um, but uh, yeah, just that's just an example of one of these things that uh, can affect the dopamine system and, and by, you know, indirectly affect focus and, and attention. I think one of the really controversial things that happens when diet comes into the, the conversation is that diet is not a cure-all. Nothing in, in any of these realms is going to cure someone of ADHD. Being on medication does not make my ADHD symptoms go away. Uh, it, it does help me to, to sustain focus and things like that, but I still get really frustrated with, with kind of memory lapses, with attention to detail, with clumsiness, with all of these things that, that don't go away. Uh, and something that, that's really important to cut, keep in mind here is that we're talking about this from a kind of a holistic perspective, that like the more you you kind of put in in terms of energy and resource and all of that to, to maintaining a healthy lifestyle, to exercising, to paying attention to your diet, including the things like Andrew was saying that might be beneficial for someone that might be suffering from some of these symptoms. Having more dopamine has shown to be really effective for people with ADHD. Like before I was diagnosed, I was taking L-tyrosine two to three times a week. Uh, like 500 milligram pills, you can get it at the GNC pharmacy, right? Uh, and it really helped me sustain focus. Uh, and but other things that increase dopamine too are like exercise and getting a good night's sleep and like all of these things that that are just part of having a healthy lifestyle that are going to make you it makes any type of neurotypical person any type of neurodivergent person feel better 
Oh yeah. So, so important to remember. Um, and then, and then, uh, one of the things we, we haven't mentioned yet regarding diet are studies on stuff like omega-3 DHA fatty acids, um, seems to be some, I haven't looked at the data myself, but seems to be some research indicating that, uh, taking omega-3, which you can get from fish oil from, I guess, from krill oil. Uh, there's other uh, plant-based sources you can get it from uh, that does seem to have an effect on attention, a positive effect on attention. Um, and it's also, it's uh, just generally the omega-3s seem to be good for brain health. <laughs> Again, yeah. The, so some of this stuff is just generally like good <laughs> to take, uh, but it may be especially beneficial if you have difficulties with attention. Yeah, there is one thing that has been kind of controversial uh, that there are some studies showing that eliminating foods that you may have some type of sensitivity or allergic reaction to uh, can can actually help with a lot of these symptoms as well. Uh, the reason why that's really controversial, though, is that uh, there's also a lot of studies that show if you hold things back in childhood, you can actually contribute to the development of allergies. Uh, and so that's where it gets kind of iffy. Um, but I've seen a lot of stuff about like doing elimination diets uh, in, in adulthood, right? And saying like, okay, I'm going to take out gluten. I'm going to take out dairy. I'm going to go with more whole foods. I'm going to take out processed sugar. I'm going to take out dyes. There's been a lot of stuff about like red dyes and they're tied to, to ADHD. And so it's one of those things where it's like, you have to go into it, this mindset of like, this is not going to cure someone. But figuring out those things that make someone feel a little bit better is going to help them overall. Because one of the things that is very distracting for me, I, I don't know, I can't speak to everybody with ADHD, but anxiety, like Andrew said, is a really big part of ADHD. It's very comorbid with ADHD. And a lot of my anxiety is about my health. It's about how I feel. I become really hyper-focused on like, oh man, my gut is just like, uh, and my back hurts and like all of these things. And I've noticed that the more I can take care of myself and exercise and stretch and eat well, that if my body feels good, it frees up my mind to actually focus on other things. So, so important. And, and like exercise in general, yeah, just so, so important for all the things we're talking about in addition to just, um, emotion regulation. I mean, emotional resilience, uh, like exercise is one of these things that like, it's pretty much, it's beneficial almost like across the board for, for anything that, that you might be struggling with the type of exercise, the intensity, you know, that varies from person to person. But another one of these things that's like that is sleep. And we did Taylor mentioned sleep. I mean, sleep, we have a whole episode on all the amazing things that sleep does to your brain. It's like fascinating what it is. And it's like, I don't know, I always think of it as like your brain going through, you you don't turn it off, but you, you change the state so dramatically that your brain is in this like just physiological repair mode. And then it, it goes through other stages, but, but that one is so important. This, uh, NREM, uh, non-rapid eye movement sleep that dominates like most of our sleeping time. It just has to do with really repairing damage in the brain as well as just flushing out stuff that doesn't need to be there. And then, uh, replenishing levels of like neurotransmitters and stuff that you use while you're awake. So there's just so much with 
getting a good night's sleep that will help uh, cross the board with health and cognition. And, and on top of that, like one of the really interesting things that has come out in the research about sleep is that when someone doesn't sleep, their brain looks very similar to someone with ADHD in terms of the default mode interference hypothesis, right? So we talked earlier about the, the default mode was coming on when I'm supposed to be engaged. Uh, that happens when people don't sleep. And it can explain why a lot of people tend to have similar symptoms to people with ADHD, because we live in a culture where people don't sleep enough and they're overstressed and all of these kind of things, right? And it makes sense because when you look at this dichotomy, this, this separation between default mode and action mode, we have this whole episode that we just did on all of this, but a lot of it is really about rest and engagement, right? Default mode comes on when we're just like sitting back, relaxing, watching a movie, thinking about what we need to do, right? And so it makes sense that if I'm not sleeping, that stuff is like kicking on and it's like, hey, like stop engaging in the world. Uh, so these are these are just really, I think, important tidbits to, to all kind of encompass into your, your idea about what this is, about how to approach it, right? Uh, it's really frustrating. I like one of the things that's come out in my research of like getting in more into like what ADHD is, how it works in the brain. There's been a lot of empowerment through that of like realizing like there are things that I can do. There are things that I can scaffold in my environment. There are ways that I can improve the function of my brain, all of these kind of things. But then there's still the moments where it doesn't work. And those moments are still really, really frustrating because it's just like, I'm doing the things I'm like, I'm, I'm putting the work in, I'm putting the energy in and I'm still forgetting stuff. I'm still like missing details. I'm still inattentive. I'm still these things. Right. And so it's, it, you have to, you have to keep in mind that these, these things are not going to cure you. These things are, are meant to give you some, some relief in your life. And the more that you can focus in on those, those little kind of successes, right. Of like, you know what, this is working. This is doing something. It's not, it's not fixing things, but it's doing something. The more you can kind of focus in on that, the more effort you can put into really encompassing all of those things into your life. And I'm not perfect, right? I, I sleep for crap, right? I, I exercise enough, but not like as much as I, I probably could, as much as would probably help. I eat crappy food when I'm like down and, and in the dumps, right? Like we all, we all get there, but like it's realizing that you have the power to make these changes. You have the power to, to really kind of take hold of your life that I think is, is really important to think about. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, no, I think we have to keep, think of it as a holistic picture, just like you said. Yeah. Um, and for, for anybody, any, you know, neurotypical individuals who are listening, uh, you know, just, try also some of the things we're talking about here and just see what effect positive effects it has on your mind, on your life. Um, I think for me, like learning about ADHD and about all this has been just, it's just it's super interesting from, from a, a kind of intellectual perspective, but also as Taylor's saying, it's even empowering for me to think about this stuff. How can I structure my life more? How can I, uh, you know, you know, when, when might my, my like dopamine levels need uh, attention or, or when, right. you know, just thinking about focus and how important it is in our, our day-to-day lives and in accomplishing goals and um, gaining more control over that process, I think is really, really important for all of us. And I think one of the things that I really want to end with is 
for the people that have loved ones in their life that struggle with ADHD, that a little bit of grace goes a long way. That like we we know when we mess up. We know when when things are not going how we want them to. Like a lot of the times we're frustrated internally. Uh, and and I know I know personally with how this has affected like people in my life and people that I love uh, that it can be really frustrating to deal with a lot of the times and the accountability that's put on other people to to try to help scaffold these things is a lot to ask of someone uh, and so so really just just thinking about how how you can bring a little bit of grace into the situation and and not encourage internalization of something being wrong with that person. And kind of really celebrating the fact that, yeah, this this person's brain might be wired a little bit differently and they might not fit into the the normal molds that that everybody's used to. But that might be a good thing. Uh, and they might use that to accomplish amazing things in this life. So I uh, thank you, everybody, for continuing to, to tune in to watch. If you're a new listener, thanks for for listening through to the end. Uh, if you have any questions, throw them out. And uh, if we get enough of them, we'll come back and we'll do another episode. Totally. And um, I, I just want to encourage everybody to, if you are enjoying this show uh, and you've gone through all our episodes, we are now making Patreon exclusive episodes every month. So if you go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash the social brain, you can find how to get access to those and how to support this show because it really does uh, require a community of people to help keep this thing going. And uh, so I just encourage you to go check that out. Uh, but again, yeah, we just totally appreciate all the viewers, all the listeners, everybody who's here to just uh, accompany us on this uh, very interesting <laughs> journey. So thank you, everybody. Yeah, and the Patreon episode we're doing this week uh, is very personal. Like we we get very personal in these. Like we kind of step out of the academic stuff a little bit. And so, if you want to hear more about the struggles that I go through, <laughs> and the the weight I put on other people, I uh, tune in. <laughs> It'll be fun. Yeah, <laughs> especially me. No, I'm just kidding. All right, uh, cool. right. So, <laughs> all right, cool. We'll, we'll see guys, you guys for the next one. Thank you. See you soon.